Are you experienced? Have you ever been experienced? And we're back with another episode of the Anarchist Experience, episode Bing 421, a.k.a. Year 8, Week 49, uh, coming at you this week. As always, I am your host, Mr. Richie Rich, along with MC and <laughs> KS. And since this is your regularly scheduled Saturday broadcast, uh, if you want to listen to this live, you can find us on the old clubhouse, uh, find the club, the anarchist experience, or at me at riches for rich, R I C H E S the number four R I C H. And then I will click the little invite button to let you know that we're starting the live show. Uh, we do the live show around 3 PM Eastern time, uh, Saturday afternoons. That's when I hit the record button or the start the broadcast button. Um, and then we can take it from there. That being said, what is going on with you guys this week? Anything new? Yeah, nothing new uh, uh, here. <laughs> I do. I do like the t- t- Tucker Carlson issue. Um, okay, go getting, on. Because no, I just it's it's cool because uh, it'll it'll wake some people up on the right uh, to how manipulated things are, um, and maybe people will watch less TV. Okay, I mean the Fox ratings dropped precipitously, apparently. Mm-hmm. And so did the stock price or whatever. So they're they're in for a hurt in there. The real question is like, where will he end up, and why was he fired? And I don't think any of those details have surfaced yet. Now, yeah, yeah. Well, he'll he'll certainly end up somewhere, um, but like Glenn Beck, um, you know, a much much smaller audience. But that was true of uh, John Stossel too. You know, John Stossel went from ABC with twenty two million. Um, viewers to Fox, which was only about seven million on his uh, Stossel show, and then now to just Reason TV. So it's you know it's, it's smaller and smaller audiences. Um, but I, I you know I I suppose it had a lot to do with that lawsuit. You know the fact that um, I, I I now I didn't follow the lawsuit. Maybe you guys can fill me in on on uh, what it was that was the implication here. Was it that they um, discussed in their private, in their personal correspondence and emails and so on, that uh, that they knew something wasn't true, but were going to um, about the uh, elections, but decided to go ahead with it anyway. Was that the the big concern, or was there more to it than that? Do you know, MC? Oh no, I don't know the official reason. Okay. For yeah, I think that's the pre- I think that's to pr- the presumption. Uh, but because they settled, right, none of that stuff ha- will actually come to light. And so, I mean, okay, even if even if true, right, like that's what every other mainstream media broadcast has done over an uncountable number of years, right? Like they know the truth, they falsify it, and then they, you know, inject it into the into the mainstream narrative. So the fact that Fox Fox News, you know, settled instead of taking it to court isn't isn't surprising. And it shouldn't be surprising that they decided to like hide information from the public because that's that's what we've been accusing them all of doing. And I'm not even like here's here's the weird thing. I don't watch Fox News, but I have watched clips of Tucker Carlson. And so I understand the uh, the popularity of his show. Um, and then when, you know, when, when real crisis hit and you got to like, you know, get a live update, like, you know, when, when nine 11 happened, right. I, I switched over to Fox news, uh, and avoided all, you know, CNN and MSNBC and all those other broadcasts. Like that was, that was my news of choice and seeing clips of Fox news versus clips of other channels. Now, um, it would probably still be my go-to. What bothered me about the whole Tucker Carlson thing is, 
you know, like afterwards, you know, so he, he got fired, whatever. Um, and then the news that was coming out was like, he's already been offered a job by the Russians, right? <laughs> they wanted, they wanted to go with that narrative, um, as if that, imp- as if that implies anything, right? <laughs> like, okay, Russia today offered him a job, right? He didn't, you know, who cares? He didn't take the job <laughs> as of yet, yeah. right? But if, you know, if someone quits and like all of a sudden, like, you know, the, the KKK offers them a job as like secretary, it's like, oh, he got fired. And all of a sudden the KKK is offering him a job like that's somehow relevant or germane uh, to, to, to any fucking situation. Right. <laughs> it sounds like a very clever move of the, the Russians, but um, he hasn't taken it up or is he taking it even seriously? I don't know. It's, I mean, it's, the, it's, I don't, it's just I don't a coup in itself just to, to make that offer. Yeah. I mean. If, and, but if I mean, the Russians were on his side, they wouldn't. That wouldn't have been the public. That's not the story you would put out there, right? <laughs> He's been colluding with the Russians, and then the first thing the Russians do is like offer him a real job. Now, that being said, I know you don't like him, MC, but Adam Kokesh, right, worked for the Russians at one point. Like he had, you know, the Adam versus the Man show on television um, before getting booted off of that for being too libertarianish, controversial. Right. And then it was a webcast and a podcast and so on. So it's not, you know, it just because you're on the Russian news channel, right. Doesn't necessarily make you a Russian asset or, you know, an accomplice in any way. And it was just an offer, right? It's, it's like, Hey, why don't you come work for us? And he goes, no, you're the fucking Russians, right? That it could have been, <laughs> it, it could have been, you know, it could have been just that, right. We don't know yet, but that's as plausible as anything else. So I thought it was, you know, silly, silly propaganda, you know, coming, coming from the left mainstream news to try to tie him to the Russians just because he was offered a job. Yeah. Right? Well, that's the, that's the only thing they have. So yeah, yeah, I get it, but still silly. Um, anything else on that? All right. So I had a conversation with my boss. I love these conversation with my boss stories. Uh, because okay so i'm going to preface this because this is something i've said before um in general generally speaking right when when someone is viewed as an authority right and then they start speaking on something of which you are an authority and they're wrong right it generally removes their credibility from everything else that they're talking about is that somewhat of a fair statement to start with like oh man this guy you know says a lot of stuff and it's really interesting but what's the stuff i the stuff i know about he's wrong about right so all of a sudden i question everything else that he says and so yeah the 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 key word you say is that you question not you don't necessarily dismiss but yeah it raises um extra caution right and so i again i don't know I don't know what the impetus for the conversation was. Um, oh, it was it was some it was the Sudan, Southern Sudan thing or something. You know, like there's a, there's a coup going on in Sudan and Southern Sudan, which, you know, I don't I don't pay much attention to, so I don't have any of the again the the relevant facts of that one. But it turned into like a conversation of you know the U.S. getting involved in other countries, right? Like, oh, look at this, the installed dictatorships, you know. And and so once again, I'm like, you know, that's, I was, I said, like, that's kind of the history of America, man. You know, th- throughout American history, it's getting involved with the wrong side, installing them into power and going, whoops, later on, right? And he's like, well, you know, what, what exactly are you talking about? And I went, I, you know, I was like, off the top of my head, you know, uh, Nicaragua, Afghanistan, Iran, and if you want to take it to like modern day, right? Ukraine, you know. He's like, oh, you know, there can't there can't be that many. I'm like, all right, well, you you believe what you want to believe. Um, so then on my lunch break, I went over and I quickly Googled it, right? Like, you know, U.S. installs dictators, you know, or something to that effect. And like the first headline that pops up is like a Salon article from 2014. And so I mentioned this, he goes, I've never heard of Salon. I go, well, it's not surprising. You know, they're not, 
I don't know how credible they are, right? But they're definitely big enough to be noticed, <laughs> right? And it was, you know, it was it was a, an article from 2014, and it was, you know, like the 34 times that the U.S. has gotten to bed with fascists and dictators and you know bad people of all sorts, right? A to Z, and of course Afghanistan, Nicaragua, Iran is on there. But the germane part of that article was like the first part of the headline was, you know, as the conflict in the Ukraine with the Nazis or whatever, you know, um, uh, 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 enhances or, you know, moves forward or whatever. I forget the word. Right. You know, here's here's all the other times that the U.S. has gotten involved in the in a bad conflict. And then it went on to list it. So, I, you know, I didn't show him this. I didn't send him the link because, again, he doesn't like the links i'm like if you can find it you know here's the beginning of the rabbit hole of which you can go down with um the other thing i learned about the boss that i didn't you know i didn't i've, I've known for a little while but i didn't think i shared on here is um he's former military right like he was in he's he's a canadian <laughs> citizen whatever but was in the u.s military um what I didn't share on here that I've known for a little while was he was only in the army for like six months and then talked his way out of it. Cause he didn't like the way things were going. Mm. Right. He's like, Oh no, you know, as a, as a Baptist preacher or whatever, um, I have a problem with, you know, the way that the, the sergeants or whatever are talking and, and the conversations that they're having, right. It's, it's just way too sexual for me, you know, <laughs> And so he, I don't know if I, again, I don't know if this is true because it's his credibility is called into question. I was like, as a private in the army, you have the legal right to take this all the way up to the president, you know, and, and talk to the president about it. Like that's, that is your right. It's in the documentation right here, you know? And so he's like, so I, I talked to my sergeant, my supervisors, their supervisors, you know, and they said, how long, how far up the chain are you going to take this? And he went as far as far as it takes for something to happen. And then he was quickly, um, basically kicked out of the army. I don't know what, I don't think it was a dishonorable discharge. Um, but he was, he was discharged after like six months. So for wanting to know about what, uh, um, I don't want to, I don't want to put too many like details out there. It wasn't for wanting to know it oh. was, he didn't like the way that, uh, his, his superior officers were speaking. He's got oh, very yeah. sensitive ears. <laughs> okay. As a Baptist as a Baptist and a Baptist preacher, right? He like for instance, we sell metal and asphalt roofing, right? He won't even say asphalt. Mm. And I'm pretty sure it's because the word ass is in there. <laughs> sure. So he mispronounces it every time he's talking about it. He calls it asphalt. Mm. Asphalt. And again, I, maybe, maybe I'm stupid, right? Maybe that's an, a perfectly all, you know, acceptable ulterior alternate pronunciation, right? But he's the only person in the history of my ears that I've heard pronounce it like that on purpose. I mean, purpose when I was in grade, grade school, I thought it was a funny name too, Asphalt. Asphalt. Yeah. Cause it's Asphalt, you know, but no, he doesn't say it. And he said like in the history of his life, he's maybe cursed three or four times total. Mm -hmm. Right. I got a small reprimand for saying, Jesus Christ. You know, within oh. earshot of him, because again, you know, I'm I'm blaspheming his Lord and Savior. Uh, but either way, he's got sensitive ears. So the way that you know, the, I mean, you've seen movies of drill sergeants, right? Sure. So there's and and you've been in the Air Force, you know. So there's there's ways that um, young men talk amongst each other, right? Or men in general talk amongst each other uh, that like offended his sensibilities as a Baptist. And more so as a Baptist preacher, yeah. And but, so, but, ki but killing people doesn't. Yeah, apparently not, right? Like, you know, <laughs> so again, there's hypocrisy there. I'm not going to deny it, right? <laughs> but that that was the thing. So you know, he he didn't like what they were saying or how they were saying it, and didn't like the language they were using. And by God, he was going to tell the president about it if he had the if he was you know if he had the opportunity. And so they quickly shuffled him out. So for all this, you know, rah rah patriotism go get them boys look how good the ukraine boys are fighting against the overbearing you know whatever in the american military and you know every once in a while when he leaves work he'll like salute me i'll give him some half-assed sidearm salute because i'm not saluting anybody 
Um, mm-hmm. and goes, you salute like this. And I go, no, you salute like that. I, I do what I want. <laughs> I'm not a boy scout, not an Eagle scout and never in the military. I ain't saluting. Um, but you know, he's got that, you know, raw, raw militarism, but he spent six months in the army, like, mm-hmm. and got booted out and still, you know, still has that, you know, patriotic fervor for like, not even his country, even though he's been here for a while, still. He's still Canadian. Um, but I just wanted to share, you know, like, so, you know, so there's this, the, he's wrong on so many things about, you know, stuff that's not in his wheelhouse um, that I was talking to my other uh, co-worker slash subordinate. He's like a normal telemarketer, part-time telemarketer. And, you know, after the boss left the room, was like, sometimes I think he's just making shit up. Like he <laughs> says it authoritatively. Right, but I don't think there's any, you know, it's there's, just a shot a in the people. dark. What's that? Yeah, there's a lot of pe- there's a lot of people that do that. Yeah, they'll come up with a story that says in their mind to, that makes sense, and so right. well, it makes sense to them, so it must be true. It's really weird. Yeah, and so, you know, I I push back on some of the small things just so he knows I'm laughing at him, um, but then I don't fight it too hard, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I'm, it does, it's, doesn't matter for this, but, you know, like little things like where you put things on the calendar, you know, and how you put the notes in. I'm like, all right. So he heard a phone call that I took the other day, and he, like, pulled me off to the side to, like, give me guidance on the phone calls. Like, all right. But I set the appointment. Like, they called in. I got all the information I needed. I set the appointment. Right? Mission accomplished. He's like, but let's talk about it because you didn't do it exactly the way that I would have done it. As if as if the way he would have done it, you know, matters. And I had to correct his dumb ass. Um, when he was training some of the, we have like Filipinos now, and he brought them in for a quick, like little training session um, on, you know, getting the, getting the questions answered. And he gave him like completely bad advice. And I like, I was in on the call. So I jumped over like, no, don't do that. Don't, don't even think about doing it that way. Do it the way that I trained you. Cause the way I trained you makes sense. And so he was, you know, a little taken aback by that. But, but again, logically consistent, right? Like that's me for the most part. So he couldn't argue against that. But yeah, so, you know, I, th- for as far as he's gotten um, in his position and in life or whatever, right? I, th- I think it's built on a foundation of um, qualified bullshittery. And I guess, you know, being a Baptist preacher helps, helps with that delivery. <laughs> sure but to, but to, to not know right to not know that the u.s is in bed with you know dictators and gangsters and thieves and liars and fascists from around the world over the course of u.s history right yeah oh i think i know what started he said like he was at a uh he was at a revival earlier this week and someone came to speak at the revival who was like boots on the ground in sudan and so was telling them, you know, all of the stuff that, you know, how the U.S. was involved in the coup and how shocking it was for people to hear that the U.S. would dare do stuff like that. But, you know, this dude's at a religious event, um, you know, talking to all of us. And so, you know, you like, you got to believe him. I go, no, oh, yeah, I totally believe him because here's a <laughs> list, bro. You know, so that's that's how that got started. It's just dumbfounded. All right. <laughs> That's my conversation with the boss story for the week. Is it time for headlines already, or is there anything else going on in the the mainstream news media? Headlines sounds good. All right, fine, we'll do it. Well, no, they're always fun. You, you uh, no, they are. You scour some. You come up with some really good stuff. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Headline. Oh, you like this one? Chinese rent a womb industry. Menacing U.S., says a think tank. Uh, headline, are libertarians abandoning free trade? Uh, headline, water theft proves lucrative in a dangerously dry world. Uh, headline, some factual and economic errors of common good capitalism. That's a long one. So if you wanted to start with that one, that would be the time. We're not going to have a short one there later. And headline, uh, this Georgia man has been jailed for 10 years without a trial. 
That's all I got this week. So which one of those jump out at you? Uh, something about libertarians giving up on trade. Sure. Yeah. From the Mises Institute. And let me let me tell you though, all of them spark lots of good uh, uh, thoughts, you know. But that one's that one's a hot one too, because I imagine I'm I'm trying to reflect. Let me guess in advance, it's probably about Ukraine. <clears throat> uh, we'll have to read. I don't recall. Like I skim these okay. things, but sometimes they're earlier in the week. Like this one right. is uh, dated April twenty fourth, so almost a whole week mm-hmm. ago. Uh, per Byland, uh, you recognize that name, so I'll say it for you. My Davis. former student. Yep. Uh, Mary Rothbard wrote in February 1971 issue of the Libertarian Forum that libertarians, if they have any personal philosophy beyond freedom for co- from coercion, are supposed to be at the very least individualists. Indeed, libertarianism holds high the rights and responsibilities of the sovereign individual, the right to self and to justify acquired property, and thus the right not to be coerced or arbitrarily restricted, and the responsibility for one's own actions, and the moral duty to respect and honor other individuals' rights. Yet, libertarianism, or at least a relatively large subset of proponents of libertarianism, has taken a strange collectivist turn in recent years. This is evident in a number of issues, such as free trade, where libertarians used to be in agreement in principle, albeit not necessarily in all the details or the application of those principles. In contrast, this new turn toward collectivism argues from a different starting point. Rather than the individual's rights, the starting point for this group is instead the, a notion of the individual's collective belonging and identity, such as one's country or ethnicity. There has, of course, never been a problem for libertarians to recognize individuals for who they are or where they choose to be, and thus, within their preferred social and cultural context, uh, no man is an island. As social beings, we are embedded in a context of community, culture, and tradition. The distinction between individualist and collectivist is neither or, but which is primary. For collectivists, the individual is subject to the will of the collective, or in reality, the will of its leadership. For individualists, the collective has no right of its own, but is subject to the individual's choice to associate. For obvious reasons, the analyst of any state of affairs from a collectivist point of view is different from that of an individualist point of view. The issue of free trade illustrates this clearly. Libertarians used to be universally and uninhibitedly for free trade. Whether domestically or across borders, voluntarily exchange serves individuals best, and any restriction thereof is a violation of their rights. Thus, any restriction should always be abolished, the sooner the better. Granted, reality is somewhat more complex, as I discuss in the seen, the unseen, and the unrealized, how regulations affect our everyday lives. Whenever the state regulates economic action, there are severe and oftentimes far-reaching distortions of both the structure and outcome of market exchange. As libertarians have long recognized, regulations create winners and losers. Also, rolling back one or few regulations, while it potentially causes a freer market, it will cause a situation with a different set of winners and losers. This is true as long as regulation remains in effect. The only truly fair and just economy is one completely devoid of the state's manipulations, whether those are actively pursued or passively affected. These complex implications of trade policy were never seen as an argument against deregulation. However, rather, they are an argument for letting people and businesses exchange without interventions. Less intervention means less distortion, and this is always preferable. This should be preferred even by interventionists, because as Ludwig von Mises famously recognized, economic interventionism is a self-defeating policy. The individual measures that as applied do not achieve the results sought. They bring about a state of affairs which, from the point of view of the advocates themselves, is much more desirable than the previous state they intend to alter. In other words, libertarians were free traders and favored any steps in the direction of free trade. However, this is no longer obvious. Donald Trump's trade war with China when he was president appears to have caused a rift with libertarianism, or at least among those libertarians who eagerly discuss policy online along the individualist collectivist fault line. 
Individuals libertarians are true to the traditional libertarian view that the state should get out of trade altogether and that a trade war is only harming consumers and the economy. The collectivists instead focus on international trade as a matter of collective justice and as a result raise other issues. Among those are the recognition that China, the other collective, is engaged in unfair business practices by subsidizing and in other ways supporting Chinese, their own, business, and as a part of this, neglecting to enforce international treaties. A similar argument can, of course, be made for the United States and any other state. This is itself not news, as libertarians have always recognized the destructiveness of realpolitik, uh, nation-statism, and the overall distortive nature of interventionism. The solution, from any individualist libertarian perspective, has always been to call for deregulation and free markets, even unilaterally with the obvious goal of getting the state out of trade. That China, for example, subsidized production so that Americans and European consumers can buy goods and services at a very low and possibly below-cost price is not a problem for anyone but the Chinese. They are, after all, picking up the tab for the low prices we enjoy. From the collectivist libertarian perspective, however, the suggested solution is very different and may even be contrary to traditional libertarian views. In their take, Chinese domestic and international trade policy is not an issue primarily for the Chinese, but threatens our businesses and therefore our ability to produce goods and services which can make us dependent on Chinese production. In other words, the issue of trade is no longer a matter of free exchange between private parties, whether individuals or businesses, but a matter of the collective to which these parties belong. International trade then becomes an issue of national security, and the argument goes is therefore justified to call on the state to act on our behalf. Consequently, a trade war is seen by this group as a means for us to pressure the Chinese to adopt fair business practices so that our American and perhaps Western European businesses can compete on the same terms as Chinese companies, or as it's often called, a level playing field. While there are certainly problems involved with this expansionary Chinese state, a Keynesian monster with grand international ambitions made it clear, among other things, the Belt and Road Initiative, it should be fundamentally problematic for libertarians to identify with and even support one state against another. It is even more problematic to support a state setting out to restrict and tax trade, whether or not it is intended as a means to pressure or punish them, the nation-state that is even more interventionists than we are. The trade war issue is the latest among a number of collectivist libertarian critiques of traditional libertarian positions. Examples include migration and state building. Uh, just like the other issues, it appears to cause a severe a confusion amongst the new collectivist breed of libertarians regarding the non-aggression principle. This core principle is what underlies the free trade issue. It is fundamentally a question of voluntary market exchange. Trade is a matter of parties involved in each exchange, not a conflict between the parties as players for different teams. There is no larger game to be played that somehow trumps or nullifies the party's right to voluntary exchange as they themselves see fit. The state is, of course, antithetical to this freedom, as it is to any freedom, whether the freedom is exercised alone or in voluntary association with others. The state is, at its core, mere aggression, not a team coach. Thus, a libertarian cannot see the state as a mechanism for good or as a means to an end, no matter how legitimate the end. Uh, and that is the end of the article. Uh, so your guys' thoughts, this kind of bumps into... You know, the immigration talk we had, was it last week or the week before, um, and how, you know, even libertarians are moving in that more status direction. So is he right and on what this What was the date well? on that? What was the date on that article? Uh, this article was April 24th. Of this year? Yes. Like oh, okay. less than a week ago. I would have thought, I mean, and I, it's a brilliant article and I agree with it 100%. <clears throat> um, and I think that... Uh, I, I was a little surprised that he didn't also reference the massive um, advocacy of, of trade sanctions against Ukraine in this, as a you know, because it's much more topical. The, the trade barriers against China are somewhat dated. You know, that was a while back, but it was just renewed or kept by Biden. So both Trump and Biden <clears throat> have practiced the policy 
And libertarians seem to have been, not libertarians, uh, some libertarians or many libertarians have been very comfortable with that, not not seeing that as a problem, just like with the immigration barriers, just comfortable with it, you know. Do you yeah. think it's, uh, I'm going to call it an infiltration of traditional conservative values into the libertarian movement, um, whether invited or otherwise, right? Like yes, libertarians wanted to cast this wide net and attract more people, and these are the people they tend to seem to be attracting. Yeah, it's it's how you define libertarian. You know, you can define it narrowly, as I do, that it's uh, someone who uh, adheres to the non-aggression principle, or broadly, that it's just a, a category that um, you know uh, generally follows a principle, and in, in case in that case, you could incorporate the conservative, um, the broad conservative swath, the minicist swath. Right, and so is it, is it something that whomever uh, regains or retains control of the Libertarian Party proper um, needs to tighten that net, right? That you know, not not have the big tent libertarianism as it were. But uh, return back to more uh, narrow, principled libertarianism, and use that to attract more people to the cause, right? Because it it seems like if you were attracting conservatives, you know, this article, the immigration issue, the libertarians are not convincing the conservatives of libertarian principles. Uh, rather, the conservatives are co-opting the the term libertarianism. And make and changing the meaning to lean more conservative. If that's if that made any sense, or if that's fair. Yeah, uh, you mentioned the Libertarian Party, and yeah, of course they're struggling with this too, and that's why the Mises Institute had this big battle recently with other libertarians on the direction of the party itself. But the libertarian, when I view. The, the broad term libertarian or small L libertarian is much broader than the party. You know? Sure. But yeah, they, they always are, are often the standard bearer for, you know, the image, but it's much broader than that. Well, and I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not a party member, right? But from the outside looking in, it would seem that the Mises caucus uh, portion of the libertarian party, who I guess now has control of it, tends to lean into these conservative values more so than the people that they ousted, right? Like with, within the party, it was uh, woke SJW libertarianism versus the principled Mises caucus. But the Mises caucus, by its very nature, um, tends to lean right or conservative, if you don't like that term. Well, you know, here... Paris writing from the Mises Institute. I, I maybe I just don't know enough about what the Mises Caucus has been advocating, but I assume that uh, the Mises Caucus was would be perfectly comfortable with his statement, with Paris' statement here. I would but, hope so. Um, and I, I thought the idea of the Mises Caucus moving so aggressively with the party was that they wanted it to be more principled. But am I wrong about that? Are they? Um, are they, have they taken stances on? other issues that are not libertarian or not consistent with the non-aggression principle? Uh, again, depends on whose side you're on. So the people that were the, the left-leaning libertarians who were ousted from power of the party, right, were crusading against what they felt was the racism of the Mises caucus, right? To, to the point where, again, me as an outsider, right, whenever I saw someone locally wearing a Mises caucus shirt, Right, I'd say, oh, you're a racist, huh? And we would all get a laugh out of it because we knew that that's what the stigma was uh, from outsiders looking in. Now, I don't, I don't believe them to be racist, but that is the perception, right? And you, you get that perception um, by allowing those types of elements into the party platform, right? Yeah. And, and in general, when you're going against the wokeness of the left-leaning libertarians right the the people who advocate more uh party involvement in social issues right you you necessarily fall 
on the right side of that left-right divide. So you're saying that there are libertarian issues where libertarian by principle could side with, could pick up this issue or this issue. Like, do you have a right to um, discriminate against somebody with your private property? The non-aggression principle would say yes, but you'd say that by choosing that topic to highlight and and advocate, it, it, it comes across as you're talking racism. Is that how you're saying it? I, or how it, it's being said by the... I'm doing a poor job, ballot. but I wouldn't dispute what you just said either. Mm-hmm. Right? So they're, you know, like the... Uh, much much like when Trump came around and it was Trump versus Hillary, mm-hmm. right? You had, you had certain elements of the Libertarian Party or Libertarians in general, right? Starting uh, organizations or groups like Libertarians for Trump, Right. Because yeah, well, I guess I heard that Walter Block was on that. Yeah, I never he's, the, he's the, his argument. He's the prime prime member of that. You know, missed. You know, the the the, the he who took on the title of Mister Libertarian with Murray Rothbard's passing, right? Um, decided that this was too big of a, a deal. Uh, you know, to, it, it was too important to not have Hillary. Um, that we needed to forego uh, forego principles in order to support Donald Trump when that came around, right? And my, what I'm suggesting is what that did at the time was invite the conservative element, the, you know, the, the right-leaning Trump supporters, right, into the libertarian world, um, and rather than sway them toward the ideals of libertarianism, um, diluted the libertarian message to be one of, you know, collectivist free trade, as this article suggests, uh, one of closed borders, right? You got to build the wall because um, you can't have, you know, you can't have immigration as long as there's a, as long as there's a welfare state um, amongst, amongst other things, right? Mm-hmm. And so to, to me, it was, a, it was a dilution of principle rather than bringing in all these conservatives and going like, okay, you guys are good on these issues. Now here's the rest of it, Right. Yeah, and I don't, yeah. and with the Mises Caucus uh, running the show for the you know the party proper, um, I'm also suggesting that it leans the party more to the right than it was because of the, a lot of the counter you know the countervailing opinions of the social you know the socially minded left libertarians um, were silenced and or ousted from the party. And they, you know, they would say that that's a problem. The Mises Caucus is like, nope, we're back on principle, you know, and so on. And they were, you know, I, I don't remember the specific examples. I think we covered them on the show. Um, at one of their meetings, there were certain, you know, words or phrases or, you know, whatever taken out of the uh, doctrine, the Libertarian Party doctrines, you know, for for the worse, depending on whose side you're on, or for the better if you're, you know, the Mises Caucus members who got that through. How is the Mises Caucus on uh, the sanctions against um, Ukraine? I'm guessing that they're opposed to the sanctions on Ukraine. Is that right? Uh, that I couldn't answer. It's been a while since I talked to one of them, and I don't, I don't really follow all of them on Twitter as much. I also, I don't know if they, I don't know if they have a like an official outlet. Um, a lot of what they, you know, a lot of what they used to post on social media was provocative and divisive. Um, and so it used to make the rounds in the general circle of social media. And I don't know if they're less provocative or less divisive or if they've been silenced in some form or fashion, um, but I haven't really seen anything uh, recently. So I have no idea what the Mises Caucus collective stance is on the Ukraine situation. Mm. But it'd be interesting to find out if they should post it. Right. Like again, from the left, you know, with the whole social media thing, Right, the libertarians in charge would would post something provocative, right? It would upset a lot of people, get a lot of eyeballs on the libertarian party, um, but for the wrong reasons. Unless you're one of those, you know, any any press is good press sort of people. I, I used a, a, a meme in a in a class when I was talking to the class. It was about uh, <clears throat> the the uh, Vietnam War that that was uh, that was fraud and. 
mm. the Iraq war, that was fraud. The Afghanistan war, that was fraud. But the Ukraine, that one's different. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. You would love this. There's a video. There's a video going around now where it's, a, it's an anti-war protest. And they're all chanting like, you know, end the war, end the, you know, war is bad, war is bad. And some guy comes up with a sign and is like, you know, all war is bad. And he goes, well, except the Second World War. Right? And they're like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> He's like, well, the Second World War, we were like fighting fascists. So that was a good war, right? It's like, okay, so uh, all war is bad, except the Second World War. And it was like, you know. <laughs> and they went, you know, and, you know, and the, uh, you know, some other war, you know, like, so all war is bad, except the second world war and the liberation of, you know, whatever. Right. And then they do it again. And they, he, he lists like three wars that, you know, are, are uh, commonly held beliefs to be like good wars that were fought. Right. He's like, you know what? I got a better idea. And all of a sudden they come back to the protest and all their signs just say, kill, 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 you know? <laughs> so if you can find that one, it's hilarious. And I didn't do it justice with that description because it was sure. No, that was good. Yeah, I um, get the point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Um, but it, you know, it's it's that mindset, right? You know, can you know one one guy at the protest, you know, co opted the whole thing with you know simple base logic of you know, well, some war is good, right? Where's the anti-war left? Well, they're they're not protesting this war because this is a good war, right? Liberating Ukraine is a good thing. So why would we protest this good war of, you know, against the evil Russians, you know, when that's, when that's a good thing? Ah, but when, you know, when the, when the Republicans are back in power and there's another bad war to fight that the Republicans lead down, right, then they'll be back because that's not the good war. That's not the good fight. And so round and round we go. Anything else on this article? All right, I'm going to interject real quick before we get to the next one then. Not that this is, this might be news to you guys, and it shouldn't be news to anybody listening to this podcast, um, which is why I, you know, did not even think to mention it earlier, uh, but just so we have a record of having talked about it, um, the, uh, a quick update on the Crypto 6. And once again, if you're getting your news from this podcast, listen to something else, please. This is, this is not where to get the late breaking. <laughs> news because we we do it once a week and by the time we get to it it's more commentary on stuff you should already know um the crypto six aria dimezzo of the crypto six um who took a plea deal in her case for running an unlicensed money transmitting business basically you know selling bitcoin uh through local bitcoins and depositing into a bank account or whatever um has been sentenced for that heinous crime uh, for 18 months, due to turn herself in uh, sometime in late June. That's illegal to um, trade Bitcoin. Uh, depends, right? She was not. She was not accused of trading Bitcoin. She was accused of running an unlicensed money transmitting business. So there's there's some terminologies and implications that I don't want to get into. Uh, but she did a lot of transactions. Right, like a few millions of dollars in transactions uh, through local bitcoins and other means, um, and then it has to be licensed by whom? By the feds. You got to get a money transmitting license, apparently, so that they can trace money laundering. Is that their purpose? That, that's what they would claim. Sure. Yeah. Like during during the initial raid, oh man, it was like two years ago at this point. Wasn't it twenty twenty one or twenty twenty? I don't remember when the initial mm. raid was. It's like March 16th, something or other, 2020, 2021. I don't remember. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't remember. Um, they, they raided some They raided some places. They arrested six people. Um, four of them took pleas early on. Aria took her plea late. Ian went to trial, and he is awaiting sentencing, having been found guilty on like eight counts, eight felony counts, uh, associated with the same business operation. Um but during the raid, there was another activist uh, who had, you know, all his paperwork in order. Like he was a legit money transmitting operation or, you know, something to that effect. He had a uh, Bitcoin ATM, um, you know, at the Bitcoin store in Portsmouth uh, that we recently talked about uh, several weeks ago. And they came knocking on his door but never produced a warrant. So he never opened the door, but he was scared shitless. 
And so last I heard between then and now, um, he has uh, escaped to Europe, I think. That's a rumor. So if someone if someone knows more and is willing to correct me, by all means, please do. Uh, but last I heard, he you know he he moved to Europe um, in order to avoid any further harassment or prosecution or anything. So he's he fled the country basically, and he allegedly had all his paperwork in order because he wasn't a part of the raid. Um, he wasn't cited as uh, as you know a, a person of interest. You know they just they knocked on his door. He didn't want to answer it. No warrant was produced. He had all his paperwork in order allegedly to run the money transmitted business. So he was he was above board. Um, but was, you know, was put off enough by the, the events of that day, um, that he, he decided to leave the country. So, you know, they, they, they initially threatened, you know, with, they initially threatened with harsher penalties, um, you know, and to, to levy more charges against them if they did not take a plea deal. Um, ironically, the gentleman who goes by the name of nobody, uh, the in uh, as a part of his plea deal again i don't remember all the specifics um he pled guilty to some charge like committing fraud or wire fraud or something like that and that was his like his only guilty plea that's the only thing they had him on and then when they moved on to ian and aria um, they dropped those charges so they convinced him to take a plea for something that they couldn't even prove anybody else did and he took it, you know, because, hey, you know, time served and probation, right, is better than a guilty plea in federal court with, with jail time on the line. Um, in Aria's case, you know, you can, you can listen to, oh, what day was it? Tuesday or Wednesday's, Wednesday's episode of Free Talk Live. I think that's the day. I think, yeah, Tuesday. She got sentenced on Tuesday, so the 25th. So if you listen to the April 25th edition of Free Talk Live, um, you can hear her words exactly because she, you know, she, she got sentenced, then she went on air. Um, and I read about the sentencing and then I listened to the show just to, you know, see what she had to say. Um, but there was, you know, there was a big question on whether or not Bitcoin constitutes money by definition, right? And a, and a lot of the defense was hinged upon the federal judge, you know, making a determination and setting a precedent on whether or not Bitcoin is money, because locally here in New Hampshire, um, it does not have a definition. It doesn't matter. They're, they broke no local laws um, in this in on these charges. Like no New Hampshire law was broken. This is all federal charges um, because New Hampshire doesn't define Bitcoin as money. They've it's a free speech issue. It's zeros and ones. It's computer code by New Hampshire definition. So no harm, no foul uh, in trading it or doing whatever. But the feds. Right. In some cases in the past have, you know, decided that Bitcoin is money and in some cases have decided it's not money, like for tax purposes or whatever. And so, you know, there was there was a goal, like a sub goal, you know, get the get off scot free. You know, goal number one, get found not guilty. Goal number two, let's get let's get a definition on file and set a precedent. And so she was ready to have a discussion on whether or not Bitcoin constitutes money. Um, and was ready to, you know, have a philosophical argument and debate about it in open court. And the judge went, no, in this case, we're considering it to be money. End of story. Bang, bang the gavel. You know, that's it. No, no debate needed. Uh, I have decided. And because of that, the way that the charges were written in legalese, um, she did not feel that she could uh, convincingly defend against those charges, right? Like, no, if that's the way you're going to define it, then yes, that's what I did. And so decided to take a plea and that plea got her, uh, 18, an 18 month sentence in federal, you know, low level prison somewhere that she's got to go turn herself in in June. So I just wanted to share that news. If you guys, you know, you guys might not have been aware of it. People who listen to the show again, if you weren't aware of it already, you know, boo to you. Um, but there's the news. That's the update. And then Ian's sentencing has been pushed back a number of times. It was supposed to be done, I believe, in April as well. Um, and I don't know when the next sentencing date is. But he is facing, you know, I think like 10 years per each of the each of the guilty verdicts. 
um, which you know likely means even after sentencing there will be appeals and so forth and delays. And but who knows? You know, her being sentenced to 18 years off of a plea deal um, does not bode well for him being sentenced off of eight uh, guilty verdicts with decades in prison on the line. Thoughts, questions, concerns? Good update. Thanks. I wasn't all that familiar with it uh, except through this podcast uh, on occasion. Yeah. All right. So someone is manning the website, thecrypto6.com, and you can either spell out six or put the number in there. And that's where all updates have been going. So if you want to follow it, um, right, you can always check out that website uh, for, you know, posted updates and when things are happening and what's, you know, what's coming up next, et cetera, et cetera, and so on. Um, next headline then, where do you guys want to go next? <clears throat> Water. Water. This is funny. Water theft proves lucrative in dangerously dry world. Uh, for your information, uh, KS, this is a Bloomberg article from Yahoo Finance, uh, April 20th. Officials inspecting water theft in Monterey, Mexico, started going out in convoys of three or four cars accompanied by police because others before them have been pelted with stones or had their cars surrounded, and one of them was briefly taken hostage. Those kinds of threats were not what Erica Flores expected uh, when she became an environmental regulation inspector in the country's business capital. But when her role turned to tracking down and enforcing water theft during a drought-induced crisis uh, last summer, Flores' job grew increasingly dangerous. It wasn't on our radar, she said. Uh, Now it's becoming part of our daily activity. Mexico is not alone. Water theft of a monumental scale has decimated national park lagoons in Spain and threatened to bankrupt farmers in Chile. In California, the illicit cannabis industry manages to get as much water as it needs, while residents for years have faced high fines and public shaming for violating strict use limits, illegal water theft, even ensnared a former mayor in Brazil. As many as 4 billion people around the globe already experience water scarcity for at least one month a year, according to UNICEF, an arm of the United Nations, and worsening climate disasters, including storms and droughts, only threaten to make matters worse. The impact is both economic and deadly. Water scarcity will slash as much as 6% of GDP in some countries by 2050, a recent UN report predicts, endangering food security and access to electricity. Cooperation between governments and organizations involved with water are key to safeguarding supplies, but so far, the political will is lacking, says Vanda Felbob Brown, a senior fellow in the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institute. Rather than just drilling for more reserves or waiting for new technologies, nations need to overhaul legal and political frameworks to roll out affordable service and step up enforcement, she said. If not, the downward spiral of shrinking supplies and illicit offtake will stoke further suffering and conflict, as well as downstream disruptions to food production and other industries, she said. Monterey is a canary in the coal mine, says Fel Bob Brown, who travels to cities from Nairobi, Kenya, to Karachi, Pakistan, studying illicit economies. But there have been quite a few canaries that have died in the mines over the past several years without really dramatic changes into how we treat water. Flores's eight-person team in Monterey found widespread theft with people digging unauthorized wells and diverting water from rivers. We realized just how much clandestine theft there was, she said. We never imagined this. At the height of the crisis, which as, which as since eased, uh, people were stealing as much as 10% of the city's water supply, estimated uh, Juan Ignacio Barragan, director of the state water company Agua y Drenage. Uh, they'd fill tankers and sell water on the black market for many times the price of what it costs from the utility, he said. Some of its irrigated crops, some filled swimming pools. In California, now coming out of a years-long drought, data don't begin to capture a glaring water theft dilemma. The illegal cannabis industry, widely estimated at $8 billion, that stubbornly persists despite voters approving recreational use in 2016. As far as blatant theft to support the underground industry, such as trucking in stolen waters, taking from fire hydrants, and digging illegal wells, the estimates are staggering. 
The amount of water stolen by the illegal cannabis industry is mind-blowing, says John Norris, retired lieutenant and former team leader of the California Department of Fish and Wildlife Marijuana Enforcement Team. Wow, what a, what a, what a mm-hmm. title that is. We are talking millions and millions of gallons taken annually by these unlawful operations. Uh, Richard Connor, an expert on water resources with UNESCO, the UN's education, cultural, and social arm, says global water theft is directly uh, related to the failure of governments to provide reliable service, forcing people to find it on their own. The people that are hijacking water tanks, the reason they're doing so is that it's profitable for them to sell the water to people that don't have the services. So the more people that don't have the services, the greater the likelihood of theft. Uh, Connor said, the crisis is starting to lead to action in some countries, although efforts have been mostly small scale. Spain, for instance, is using its civil guard to crack down an illegal pumping at its Doñana wetlands. Uh, While the worst drought in decades could have contributed to its drying up, the main cause was the theft for domestic use, including watering gardens and filling swimming pools in the suburb nearby, uh, WWF said. An eight-month probe involving 1,400 agents led to arrest of 133 people last year. Water theft in Spain's Mediterranean coast is so deeply rooted in urban development, too, says uh, Felipe Fuentesals, Agriculture and Water Coordinator for WWF Spain. In Brazil, an agricultural powerhouse, former mayor uh, Clebel de Souza Cordero of Saguero was convicted of stealing water from the São Francisco River, the main water source. Uh, for millions of people in the drought-hit Northeast to irrigate his own orchards. But his six-month prison sentence was later reduced to community service and a fine. The government of left-leaning Chile, President Gabriel Boric Font, is looking to step up control of water resources. The country's water regulators reported its inspections of illicit water rose to 9.5% last year from 2021 and issued 555 fines worth about $6.4 million. The number of federal water inspectors is set to double between early uh, 2022 and the end of this year. The objective is not to continue fining people, but to end the illegal extraction of water, Chile's former public works minister Juan Carlos Garcia said. Uh, Chilean farmer Felipe Rojas is living the reality. The sexagenarian has about 150 acres near the mouth of the Montico Wither and in one of the central Chile's agricultural heartlands uh, where he's grown beans and raised livestock for decades. In the drier summer months, the river flow gets so weak from thieves that seawater moves upstream, choking his access to fresh water. Last year, he lost his entire bean harvest. Those upstream, those, those upstream take all the water from us, he said. With the profits they make in just a few weeks, they have enough to pay a lifetime of fines. Uh, end of the article. So is it, is it really water theft because they're taking it from nature? Is this a problem with... Uh, government set prices, right? Which which you know leads to shortages and black market. Like, what's what's the real cause of what's going on here? Two things I'd say are the massive distortions of the water. Um, one, of course, is pricing. You know, if you price it at zero price, people will take a lot, uh, will use it uh, much more. Uh, you know, with uh, abandon. Uh, you know, not caring if it's if it's true value. Uh, and prior to that was the massive subsidy of the uh, delivery of water. For example, in California, um, to take, uh, well, at one time, you know, some years ago when I read about this uh, in The Economist magazine, they were talking about uh, how it takes uh, um, $100 to deliver uh, one acre foot of water from the High Sierras down to Southern California, and then they when where did that hundred dollars per acre foot of water come from? Well, it came from governments who decided that they were going they were going to extract it for the benefit of primarily farmers. Farmers who would get the water that cost a hundred dollars per acre foot would get it at something like four dollars per acre foot ah. uh, that they'd pay for. So it's a very very heavy subsidy. And then in the cities, they might pay two or three or five hundred dollars per acre foot in the cities for different kinds of use, you know, for for um, you know personal consumption, right, or watering or washing dishes or whatever like that. And that's true in almost well, I it's true in Hawaii, it's true in other places too. I don't know exactly what the ratio is in every state, but this is a tremendous imbalance then. 
the heavy subsidy means you're going to be spending a lot to take water and then at low prices, giving it away at low prices. In in Hawaii, they have a <clears throat> a cost of water that is much much lower for agricultural purposes, which includes all the all the golf courses, uh, eighty golf courses as I understand around the islands, um, and yet a much higher price uh, for personal consumption use. So that also <laughs> means that personal consumption, right, is subsidizing those agricultural businesses. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's a great irony, too, because at the same time the government has these policies prohibiting people from buying agricultural products from other countries at much lower prices. <clears throat> so you have a greater demand for agricultural products in the United States, and they subsidize that by subsidizing their, their water. Uh, so you can grow rice in the, in the fields of Southern California, rice in the deserts of uh, Southern California, yeah very water-intensive, and not allowed to buy rice from other countries that would be glad, like in Haiti. They'd be glad to be selling rice to the United States. Uh, they're so desperately poor, but they're not allowed to. Yeah, and well, in, in Haiti in particular, is, it's even worse because they've imported rice there, killing the local market. That's right. The U.S. has exported the rice, uh, dumped it abroad under the Food for Peace program, yeah. and that, that wipes out their projects too. So the whole thing is a government uh, scam on on water and trade barriers, um, all this uh, distortion. And the, I blame it to a great extent on the power of, of farmers, but it's uh, the power of other users too, I'm sure. Okay. And, of course, that whole thing has distorted the whole water market. If, if you have a minute, because I know we're getting pressed for time, um, this last example down at the end of the article where the people upstream were taking the water, destroying his downstream crops. Is there a, is there a, a solution for that um, outside of governmental controls? Right? Like what does is, what is the downstream people do when upstream people have access to it first? I, I, um, those are considered to be water property rights based on historic usage, so which is sort of like homesteading the waterways, um, you know, lakes and rivers and streams. And I think it's based on a, on a property principle that we would have, that it was a, a way of trying to apply other property rights to water, and it worked quite well, I think, for a long time. Because if the if the guy upstream had a historic percentage of the water that was in the in the riverbed, uh, then he had a right to it. And if somebody downstream wanted more of that water, they could simply pay them for okay. it. <clears throat> but the guy downstream, um, well, doesn't want to pay for it if he doesn't have to. If you can get the government to change the policy on how much property right the guy has, then um, then he avoids that cost. Well, and this was also the mouth of, mouth of a river, too, right? So as he still had water, but it was salt water that was backing up from the ocean as opposed to the fresh water coming from, the, you know, the, the upstream river. Sure. See, and, he could, and people who have been denied this, and then I'd have to say this is an issue with regard to water and natural rights, uh, the, the natural... Um, resources all across the country the indigenous population that should have the prior claim to uh, resources and water and so on they were powerless for the most part through most of american history they were just cut out and now they're starting to assert uh, rights to it but of course that's then uh, uh, undoing the the, the um, property rights claims that were established when Indians, uh, the uh, indigenous population was completely squeezed out of it. So in a way, the government's getting a, getting its uh, come up. It's uh, now it's having to have to resort. Well, what, what rights should they have on the basis of historic claims? And I have always made the suggestion that if you wanted the upstream water, uh, you should have homesteaded the property upstream. Right. The, uh, yeah. Another example that comes up in Hawaii is, you know, how high can you build your high rise on your property and obstruct someone's view, you know, back ways. Right. And I said, as high as you want. Right. Because if they wanted to maintain the view, they should have bought all the land between their property and whatever they want the view of to make sure that there wasn't an obstruction. But to restrict yeah. you from doing what you want on your land. Right. So that they can maintain, you know, some value on theirs is absurd. Yeah, I think so. There were <clears throat> people in there were Japan had property rights that essentially had a claim not to to sight lines but to sun 
exposure. You know, yeah. that, that if a tall building went up and then cut out your your sun access, that they had a claim against the the high rise on that grounds. And <clears throat> I think there's a there's a, a distinction that's logical. It's a difference between sight line, which is anywhere you want to see, versus uh, sun exposure, which can have a lot to do with um, you know heating and and um, uh, light and all all kinds of other things. Yeah. So there there may be a distinction between those two, but yeah, I think you're right that, well, that uh, same if you, thing. If right? you want to, if you want the right to the sight views, pay somebody for it. Or if you want the right to the sun, right, ex- expand your fence line. Right, so that no, you know, you get a certain angle or, or amount of sun, regardless of how far away they put their, or how far, how high up they put their building, because the angle, you know, wouldn't justify it, no matter how high they went near your property. Yeah, right. I think that's probably right. Yeah. Final thoughts. No thanks. All right, that'll do it for us. Then you guys know where to find us: anarchistexperience.com on Telegram, t.me slash anarchistexperience, or t.me slash the anarchist experience. And if you would like to contribute to this show financially, you can still do it through Patreon: patreon.com slash the anarchist experience. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to y'all next week. Peace. Aloha.